0: The following episode contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Method and Madness. This is The Path Murders in Atlantic City. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. Rarely does a human being know, let alone contemplate, that when they get dressed for the day, that's the outfit they could die in. Kim chose cami pants in a Hard Rock Cafe tank top. Barbara pulled on a pair of jeans and a brown shirt. Tracy selected a red hoodie. And Molly put on a denim mini and a mesh type blouse. And that was what each of them was wearing when they were found murdered lined up in a row behind a West Atlantic City motel. It was November 20th, 2006, just a few days before Thanksgiving, when the gruesome discovery was made. This is the story of four women, unrelated to each other, but loved by those who knew them. All four women victims of a suspected serial killer. Let's dive in. The motels along Black Horse Pike in Egg Harbor were once thriving. Built in the 1950s, for a few decades they attracted families and couples who were vacationing at the Jersey Shore. Think quaint, colorful motels, station wagons in the parking lots, bathing suits, hung out to dry. The area, which came to be known as Motel Row, was just to the west of Atlantic City, the East Coast hotspot for the over-21 crowd craving the glitz and glamour of casinos and nightlife in a beach setting. Atlantic City didn't open its first casino until 1978, but the Seaside Playground had other things going for it long before gambling was legalized in the Garden State, long before it was known for its tables and slots. Atlantic City was incorporated in 1854 and its first boardwalk was built along the beach in 1870. Photos from its pre-casino era show the good old summer days. A ferris wheel and a merry-go-round, phone booths, arcades, ski ball, Cheap eats like $1 for a fresh flounder platter, 10 cents for a hot dog, and a tram car that could take you from one end of the boardwalk to the other, giving tired feet a rest. And Atlantic City has long been known as the venue for the Miss America pageants, where it hosted the competition since 1921. But the once thriving tourist spot began to hit a decline in the late 20th century for various reasons. The city's economy crashed, and large, grand hotels started seeing high vacancy rates. Guests were cutting down on the amount of time they'd stay. Atlantic City has had its ups and downs over the years, but lives on in the board game Monopoly, its properties named after locations in and around AC. To the west of the Monopoly town, Egg Harbor Township's Motel Row was becoming an eyesore with rooms sold by the hour up and down the highway. An area that became known as West Atlantic City was synonymous with crime and drugs. In 1987, Motel Row made headlines, but not for any nostalgic reason. A drug raid at two of the motels was a glimpse into what had become of the once-vibrant stretch of road in Egg Harbor, Nine people were arrested, including the owner of the Golden Key Motel. Sonny Patel, who managed the motel and lived there, faced charges relating to promoting prostitution and maintaining a place of prostitution. Others staying at the Golden Key and at the nearby Santa Maria Motel were arrested for possession of cocaine and possession of heroin with the intent to distribute. By the 1990s, the motels were being utilized to house families affected by poverty until those families were moved at the advisement of local leadership that said their motels offered substandard living conditions. By 2006, Gary Israel, the president of the West Atlantic City Home and Business Association, said, quote, It has indeed been the tale of two cities. On one side of Black Horse Pike, There are beautiful homes in tranquil settings. On the other side are dilapidated, obsolete motels that long ago provided no more value to the community and harbor people who are in the shadows of society and bring with them elements of crime. I can only make an analogy to a serious disease like cancer. We are long past the growth. The cancer is spreading throughout motel managers weren't necessarily complaining. Because they offered cheaper rooms than the lodging options on the AC Strip, there would be quote-unquote spillover with sex workers and drug dealers making a short trip over to Egg Harbor to conduct their business. The Golden Key Motel, located at 8030 Black Horse Pike, blended in with the others. Out front, A neon sign illuminated with the word vacancy and black and red lettering boasted the price of $20 per night for a double occupancy room with a phone and color TV. Yes, we're open. The sign in the window at the front office welcomed potential guests to check in and receive a key that would unlock one of the doors of the pastel pink building. With a population of 42,000 in the year 2006, Mayor James McCullough called Motel Row, quote, an embarrassment, a hot seat for prostitution, drugs, and domestic violence, end quote. He expressed concern that motel guests were known to stumble out onto the Black Horse Pike and get struck by cars. By November of 2006, The motels were still standing, despite efforts to tear them down and start fresh. Locals referred to the working-class area as the worst place to live. It was Monday, November 20th, around 3 p.m., when two women were out for a walk on a marshy access path behind Motel Row, when they came upon a gruesome scene. A 911 call came in moments later. A woman, calling from a motel phone, said, She and her friend were taking a walk down by the path, and they were picking flowers. They found a dead woman. There, in a five-foot-deep, ten-feet-wide drainage ditch that runs parallel to Black Horse Pike, the two women saw a body lying face down. Upon the arrival, Egg Harbor police officers secured the scene and began walking the path to assess and gather evidence. 148 feet from the body, they found a second body, also a woman, also face down in the ditch. Another 90 feet down the path was a third woman's body, and finally, 83 feet further was a fourth. What they thought was an isolated incident was looking like a quadruple homicide. All four victims were positioned similarly, face down in several inches of water, their heads facing east. Because of this detail, and whether it was deliberate or not, tabloids would later refer to the unknown killer as the Eastbound Strangler. The women seemed to have been killed elsewhere, transported, and placed there in the ditch. Aside from where their bodies had been callously dumped, they each had lots in common. They'd all left behind friends and family that cared dearly about them, and each woman had aspired to a better life after being caught up in addiction, a result of suffering traumatic events, divorce, death of a loved one. To support their lifestyle, they had each turned to sex work. Identifying the four women investigators soon realized was not going to be a simple task. None of the women had any identification on them, no purses or phones, just their clothing. And all four of them were without shoes and socks. A few of them had been lying in the watery ditch for weeks, their faces unrecognizable due to decomposition. The first victim found was identified as Kim Raffo, 35 years old, and it was said she was the last one to be killed. Kim was born on February 12, 1971, and raised in Brooklyn, New York, She married young at the age of 18 to her high school sweetheart, Hugh Oslander. They began their lives as husband and wife, had two children, and moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 2000. Kim was a loving mom and volunteered with the Girl Scouts and the PTA. When construction work became scarce for her husband, Hugh, he moved to New York while Kim stayed behind with the kids. Her love of cooking led her to a culinary school where she met and fell for another man, Kenny, a man that Hugh described as a low life who was responsible for getting Kim hooked on drugs. In 2003, Kim, now addicted to crack cocaine, moved to Atlantic City with Kenny, and the pair worked at the Taj Mahal Casino. Kenny would later say that despite the couple holding steady jobs, when they would walk out of their home, they were immediately confronted with the reality of their neighborhood. Crime, poverty, and constantly being approached by drug dealers. He said they both got caught up in it. For Kim, leaving her children behind caused her a lot of inner turmoil. She longed to be the one still taking care of them and continued to use drugs as her coping mechanism. Family members blamed Kenny for luring Kim into a dark world. After losing their respective jobs at the Taj Mahal Casino, Kim started making money as a sex worker while Kenny began shoplifting. A kind woman with a huge heart, Kim, from time to time, would offer a homeless person her shower and cook them a meal. In the fall of 2006, Kim was ready for a life change. She moved to Long Island, New York, where she lived with her husband Hugh for five weeks, and got sober. Hugh was optimistic that they were going to work things out and be reunited as a family. At this time, the couple's children were being cared for by a foster family, and a heartbreaking turning point came when Kim reached out to her kids and was told they didn't want to speak to her. The devastation reportedly caused a relapse for Kim, and she returned to Atlantic City that fall, and began living in a boarding house on Ocean Avenue, just blocks from the bright lights of the casinos. At about 2.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 19th, dressed in camouflage pants and a white Hard Rock Cafe tank top, Kim stopped the diner, Papa Joe's, where she was a regular. She ordered a Mountain Dew and a sausage, egg, and cheese on a roll. It would be her last meal. She was then seen getting into a black Nissan Maxima, with out-of-state plates. The next day, Kim was found face down in a ditch. She had died of ligature strangulation with either a rope or a cord and is believed to be the last of the four to be killed. Her autopsy revealed she had a large dose of cocaine in her body. The second woman to be identified was Tracy Ann Roberts, 23 years old, Tracy grew up in Newcastle, Delaware, and trained to be a medical assistant. She had one daughter and lived in Philadelphia for a while before moving to the Jersey Shore. In 2006, her home was a boarding house on Tennessee Avenue in Atlantic City, and Tracy was known by many as kind and friendly. Some reports say she and victim Kim Raffo were friends. The last confirmed sighting of Tracy was at a local hospital, where she was admitted briefly. Tracy had suffered a punch in the throat by a man who was attempting to be her pimp. The injury had Tracy coughing up blood, and she called her mom from the hospital. She told her mother that she was ready to come home and asked to be picked up. Tracy's mom got in her car and started the drive, 130 miles from Delaware, to retrieve her daughter But Tracy checked out of the hospital before her mother could arrive and was last seen with two unidentified men. Her autopsy revealed that she too had a large amount of cocaine in her body. She'd been dead for about a week and had died of asphyxia, though the method was unclear. Dental records identified the third victim six days after she was discovered, 42-year-old Barbara Brader. Barbara was born on June 5, 1964 and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia, in a loving, stable home. Her parents were reportedly wealthy, and Barbara was popular in high school. She was highly intelligent and attended Penn State University for two years before ending her education due to some personal struggles. Her father died suddenly in the early 1980s, and Barbara reportedly had difficulty processing and healing from his death. In 1988, Barbara was given pain pills by her then boyfriend to ease her menstrual cramps. She began abusing the medication, and when she could no longer get a prescription for it, the couple turned to heroin. The addiction took over her life for many years. In 1997, Barbara gave birth to a baby girl. By that summer, she moved from Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania, to Atlantic City, New Jersey. Barbara had spent summers at the Jersey Shore as a child and was comforted by the sense of nostalgia and familiarity. She had a lot of potential, according to her loved ones. Barbara went on to run her family's jewelry store, Santa Fe Trading Company, and she worked at the Tropicana Casino as a cocktail waitress. But she was faced with another tragedy in the year 2000, when her brother died suddenly. The following year, she asked a family member to care for her daughter in Florida. And by 2002, Barbara had turned to sex work in Atlantic City and broke up with her long-term partner. In January 2005, and again in July 2006, Barbara was arrested for soliciting an undercover cop. She was convicted in August of 2006 for the two counts. On October 17, 2006, Barbara left her home on North Lafayette Avenue in Ventnor, New Jersey, where she lived with a man and his daughter. She was supposed to return later that night, but she never did. Although Barbara was the third victim found, police believed she was killed before Tracy and Kim, but her body's state of decomposition made a cause of death unknown. She had a potentially lethal dose of heroin in her body. The police needed the public's help in identifying the fourth victim found. She'd been in the watery ditch the longest, up to six weeks. The young woman with dark hair had three distinctive tattoos, so investigators reached out to local tattoo artists in the hopes that someone would recognize the art and be able to name the woman. They drew up reproductions of the tattoos rather than releasing images of the victim's body. Those drawings depicted a brown-colored bulldog which was on the small of the woman's back. There was also the outline of a Playboy bunny on her shoulder and near her navel, letters that were difficult to make out. Officials thought it said, YALI, volley." Or Molly. Ultimately, it was family members who identified the woman when they saw the images of her tattoos. She was Molly Jean Dilts, the youngest victim at just twenty years old, and the first one to be left in the swampy ditch. Born to Nikki and Werner Dilts, Molly grew up in the small coal mining village of Black Lick, Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh. It was the kind of living where everyone knew your name, and Molly was a little out of her element when she eventually made her way to Atlantic City. She struggled in school and was teased for not being a strong reader. When Molly was a teenager, her mother became ill and passed away while waiting for a heart transplant. Not long after, Molly's brother died by suicide. According to relatives, these events were devastating for Molly, and she began displaying a more rebellious side. She got mixed in with a bad crowd and was arrested for drunk driving. Molly had a baby boy in 2005 and started talking about cleaning up her life. She asked her father to take care of her son while she began traveling impulsively, but trying to seek something better. She just wasn't sure what. For a time, she lived with a family in Philadelphia, and it was there that Molly was hailed a hero after a particularly terrifying incident. While waiting for a bus at Lehigh Avenue and 29th Street, Molly was approached by two men who asked her for a cigarette. They then began exchanging words with another man, Ardo Rosa, before they shot him in the stomach. Molly was then told by the gunman, quote, "'You could be next,' The two assailants took off, leaving Ardo Rosa bleeding in the street. Molly stayed with the wounded gentleman, applying pressure and comforting him while waiting for an ambulance. Ardo survived and later returned to the streets to find Molly. He wanted to thank her for saving his life, but he was unable to locate her. On October 7, 2006, Molly called her dad from a payphone in downtown Atlantic City but she hung up when he answered. That was the last time anyone would hear from her. She didn't have a record of any sex work arrests, and her father, Werner, insisted she was not working in that field. But police believe Molly was actively doing the work in West Atlantic City in the fall of 2006, out strolling, when she was targeted. Some reports say she was friends with victim Kim Raffo, Both had been known to frequent the same diner. Since Molly's body had been in the ditch for six weeks, officials were unable to determine a cause of death. Her autopsy revealed she had alcohol in her body. The four women from different backgrounds, different locations, all varied in age, but it appeared they'd all been targeted for similar reasons. They were vulnerable. They were women. In the weeks after the women were identified, locals, along with the victim's family members, helped set up a memorial near the roadway of Black Horse Pike. There were four crosses bearing the names Barbara, Kim, Tracy, and Molly. Let's take a break. Hey, Dawn here. Some exciting news for you. Save the date because July 12th through July 14th, 2024, I will be heading to the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in Denver, Colorado. Won't you join me? I attended last year when the event was in Austin, and it was a phenomenal experience. And this year's event is going to be even better. You'll get to meet other true crime creators and have access to hands-on sessions and insights from industry experts with the brand new podcaster education track. But the weekend isn't just about podcasts. It's about advocacy, ethics, and building a community. If you're worried about the cost, fear not. This festival is designed with you in mind, an affordable experience without sacrificing quality. There are no inflated costs, just a weekend packed with authenticity, education, and networking. Have you ever wished for genuine, one-on-one interactions with your favorite creators, well, now is your chance. Get 15% off your ticket price by using code DAWN at checkout. Go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com for tickets and get 15% off by using the promo code DAWN. I hope to see you there. After the discovery of four bodies behind Black Horse Pike in Egg Harbor, New Jersey, nearly 50 people came out for a candlelight vigil, held one evening in December at Kennedy Plaza in front of Boardwalk Hall. Friends of Kim's came out, as well as her widower, Hugh. Women's Center Director Claudia Raslaff said, quote, "'We mourn their loss and support their families. We want to let the nation know we care.'" They were victims because of their addiction and lifestyle, but mostly because of their gender. Over 100 detectives and prosecutors were assigned to the case. They were getting tips and hunting down hundreds of leads. One obvious place was under scrutiny, the Golden Key Motel. Who had been staying there in the weeks or months leading up to the discovery of the women? And had any of the victims been seen there? some of these questions would be difficult to answer. Law enforcement were drawn to one particular room at the Golden Key, Room 101, which was hidden from anyone passing by. It seemed like a convenient place for someone who wanted to conduct their business in private, but talking to guests who had stayed there and searching the room turned out to be a dead end. The area in and around motel row was canvassed, Anyone who might have known the women or could have seen something suspicious were questioned. A cocktail waitress living at the Golden Key Motel told police that she would head out every day at 3 a.m. for work. She said that in the weeks leading up to the discovery of the four victims, she saw a gray Plymouth van driving up and down Black Horse Pike several times. The driver, a man, would stop to leer at women who were out walking. would drive off if a man appeared. This, too, turned out to be a dead end. A man named Terry Olson became a person of interest when his girlfriend told police he was the killer. He'd been staying in room 127 at the Golden Key right before the bodies were discovered. He'd gotten a free room in exchange for doing odd jobs as a handyman for the motel, but Olson adamantly denied involvement After police got a warrant, they searched his room and home for two days, where they found hidden cameras. Olson confessed that he used the cameras to secretly tape his girlfriend's 15-year-old daughter while she was getting undressed. He was arrested and charged for the videotaping, and he served six months. While serving his sentence, Olsen offered to take a lie detector test and provided investigators with his DNA. He was ultimately cleared as a suspect, but later said the police ruined his life with the accusations. Another person of interest was Eldred Raymond Burchell, who told a West Atlantic City sex worker that he was responsible for the murders, but investigators found no credible evidence. Also looked into was Charles Cole, a friend of victim Kim Raffo, and a known drug dealer. He was released and cleared and Mark Hesse, an acquaintance of victims Kim and Barbara, was questioned and released. As the days ticked by with no arrests made, residents in and around the area were terrified, the notion of a possible serial killer on the loose. Sex workers told reporters they were petrified to get into anyone's car, and many vowed never to go near any of the motels on Black Horse Pike. Law enforcement didn't release any specific information about a suspect that they were looking for. If they had a profile of any kind, they weren't sharing. The Best Western Hotel, located in AC, was handing out flyers that included a profile of the suspected murderer. Police and the county prosecutor's office denied that the profile came from anyone actively working the case, and cautioned anyone to take the information seriously. Stock Incorporated is a private company and were apparently hired by a local business to provide a profile of the elusive killer. According to Stock Inc.'s website, they are a profiling team of professionals whose mission is to aid law enforcement in the apprehension of serial killers through a comprehensive profiling process this team of unnamed profilers, said that the killer was a local male very familiar with Atlantic City and the disposal site of the victims. They described the man as rigid and structured in his everyday life. The most compelling detail in this unofficial profile was the assertion that the killer has, quote, an extreme foot fetish and has a collection of women's shoes and the shoes of the victims. Several residents in and around West Atlantic City read this profile and quickly grew alarmed as it sounded like someone they knew. At the Fox Manor Hotel on Pacific Avenue, General Manager Manny Trevetti told police that he provided a man a room and that man sounded eerily similar to the man in Stock.com's profile. Trevetti said that this guest stayed at the hotel for three weeks and that he had a collection of six to eight pairs of women's shoes in his room. He was described as a man of medium height with blue eyes, thinning brown hair, and a mustache. Hotel employees also said that the shoe collector had been overheard asking to massage another guest's feet. Investigators refused to comment on the validity of any of this information. And finding a man who solicited women for sex in West Atlantic City was a a needle-in-a-haystack scenario. It may have been a local resident who was familiar with the area, or a passerby coming through the area for leisure or for business, who stuck around for a few weeks. The killer could be literally anyone, but someone, whoever it was, had become familiar enough with the area to first bring Molly's body to a path behind Motel Row. And that killer was comfortable enough to return to the drainage ditch three times over the course of several weeks. All four women were barefoot for reasons unknown. Was this a killer with a foot fetish? Did he keep their shoes as a trophy? One theory that police did release, based on the victims each having various levels of drug or alcohol in their systems... It was believed that the killer may have used substances as a form of sedation to overpower the women or get them into a state where he could have complete control. Years came and went without any arrests. In 2010, the Golden Key Motel made headlines again when Jessica Kisby and Craig Arno were arrested and charged with the murder of 47-year-old Martin Caballero. The couple had accosted the man in the parking garage of the Trump Taj Mahal and forced him at gunpoint into the back of his 2009 Lincoln SUV. Craig Arno took off in the brand new vehicle while his girlfriend, Jessica Kisby, followed behind in her Toyota. Just minutes earlier, Martin had dropped his family off at the front doors of the casino and went to park the car. He was taken to a rural area where the couple then stabbed him repeatedly until the knife broke. They then paused, drove 15 minutes to Jessica's mother's house, got two more knives, and returned to the scene where they finished what they'd started. They then dragged Martin's body into a bush and set the SUV on fire. Security footage at the casino parking garage led to their arrests days later when they were staying at the Golden Key Motel. As early as 2007, locals in the Atlantic City area were doubtful that the murders of Kim, Tracy, Barbara, and Molly would ever be solved, mainly because the victims were sex workers who'd used drugs, and the assumption was that authorities didn't prioritize the investigation. But Atlanta County Prosecutor Ted Housel was adamant this was not the case. He said, quote, They were four human beings with people who cared about them people who loved them, and they deserve, even in death, to be treated with respect and dignity, especially in death. Nobody in this office thinks any less of them because of what they did in their private lives. End quote. Unsurprisingly, after Kim, Tracy, Barbara, and Molly were discovered behind Motel Row, no other victims showed up in the area around the drainage ditch. Had the killer taken a break a cooling-off period, or had they simply moved on to continue their spree elsewhere? Four years later, an eerily similar discovery occurred just 170 miles northeast. It was December 11, 2010, when an officer with the Suffolk County Police Department in Long Island was out searching for a missing woman named Shannon Gilbert. His cadaver dog alerted the officer to an area on the side of a roadway near Gilgo and Oak Beach. That day, the body of Melissa Barthelemy was found in a burlap sack. Investigators found three more bodies along the beach and identified the victims as Maureen Brainard, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello the women became known as the Gilgo Beach Four. Other similarities between the Gilgo Beach Four and the Atlantic City victims prompted questions about whether or not this was the work of one killer. The women found on Gilgo Beach had also been working as escorts and had struggled with addiction. For more than a decade, the Long Island serial killer and the quote-unquote eastbound strangler were mentioned in the same articles, Were they the same person? Who was strangling sex workers near beaches and discarding their bodies all in a row? What would be the big break in the case? Officials in Atlantic City regularly communicated with law enforcement in Long Island, but were unable to find any official link between the killings. DNA evidence was collected from both crime scenes. And then, in July of 2023, an architect from Long Island was charged with three murders. The killer of Melissa Barthelemy, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello was, according to police, Rex Hurriman. He had an office in Midtown Manhattan and was arrested as he was leaving work one summer evening. The man known as the Long Island serial killer had been connected to the deaths of the three women through phone records, his physical description, and from DNA he left on a pizza box. The capture of Rex Hurriman led to new interest in the Atlantic City murders. The families of Kim, Tracy, Barbara, and Molly all wanted to know, was this the guy? Were they finally going to see some justice? In total, 11 bodies had been found in and around Gilgo Beach on Long Island, and in January of 2024, Heurman was hit with a fourth charge, the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes of the original Gilgo Beach Four. Internet searches found on his burner phones under a junk email account were disturbing and quite telling. His searches included terms related to torture porn, young girls in distress, and in 2022 and 2023 before his arrest, he'd searched these phrases. Why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Long Island serial killer, phone call. There were a ton of other similar searches. Hureman had also searched for documentaries and podcasts about the Long Island serial killer and had specifically searched some of the Gilco Beach victims' names. It offers a modern window into the mind of a serial killer who hasn't yet been caught. Was it the anxiety of wondering if today was the day there'd be a knock at the door? Or was it the stroking of the ego, sitting back and getting satisfaction that he'd evaded capture? In August 2023, police released a statement that Rex Heuerman is not connected to the Atlantic City murders. As of today, there have been no arrests made for the murders of Barbara Brader, Kim Raffo, Tracy Roberts, and Molly Dilts. In 2015, the Golden Key was finally demolished, along with the other motels on the Strip. There was hope that it would lead to redevelopment in the area. As of 2023, that side of Black Horse Pike is just empty billboards and overgrown shrubbery. Kim, Tracy, Barbara, and Molly have not been forgotten. Their legacy lies with their family members and the children who they left behind, all who knew them as bright young women who deserved a better shot at life, daughters, mothers, wives, and friends. If you have any information on the murders of Barbara Brader, Kim Raffo, Molly Diltz, or Tracy Roberts, please contact the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office at publicinformation@acpo.org, or call 609-909-7800. You can check the show notes for more info. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review, and don't forget to hit that follow button. To connect, I'm on x at methodpod, on Instagram at methodandmadnesspod, and you can find me on TikTok and Facebook as well. To chat, suggest a case, or to discuss the episode, you can reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is an independent production. It is research written and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.